Hello, hello. My name is Barnaby Pickering and welcome to this podcast from Unvivo. Last week, I got the chance to speak to Sarah Barrington, CEO of Verici DX, about the company's range of diagnostics and how they apply to kidney transplant patients. During our discussion, Barrington gave an overview of the kidney transplant market and an explanation of how Verici's diagnostics are differentiated to others on the marketplace. At the end, we also touched on the future of kidney transplants and the excitement about the possibility of xenotransplants. If you're a bit strapped for time and want to skip to the sections of most interest to you, scroll down on the story page on our website for a full list of timestamps. And just as a reminder, all of Sightline's podcasts can be found on our website, as well as SoundCloud, Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I hope you enjoy. Thank you. How are you, Barney? Very, very good. Thank you for agreeing to speak to us today. Um, we're going to be tackling the big topic of kidney transplants. Nobody wants one, but lots of people need one. Um, how about you give us a rough intro into kidney transplants, volumes, waiting lists, the current situation in America? Yes, thank you. Um, pleasure to be here, by the way. Kidney transplants is actually a treatment. That was the first thing it took me a while to get my head around, is this sort of phrase of it being a treatment. And if you think about it, that is exactly what it is, even though it's, it doesn't come in pill format. You know, when you have kidney disease, kidney disease is uh, a huge problem across the world. And in fact, um, by and large, it's silent in its early stages. And then what happens is most people are actually diagnosed um, later stage. So stage three, stage four, uh, and quite often at a point where they they call it end stage kidney disease. But it's it's the final and permanent stage of chronic disease. Uh, kidney disease and you've lost functionality and obviously everybody understands uh, how vital the kidney is to to the body's survival um and um you know when you look at that in the us uh you know i think the the latest stat i saw was 786,000 people living with that end st- stage kidney disease about 71% of them are on dialysis. That's the other real treatment. And about 29% of them have received a kidney transplant. Um, so that translates, if we 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 have a sort of ballpark figure, uh, annually about 100,000 uh, kidney transplants every year globally. Um, you know, in 19, uh, not 19, that shows my age, 2022, um, there was uh, about 25,000 done in the U.S., um, that is a fraction of the people that need a kidney transplant. So one of the features that I think um, most people will be aware of is the waiting list. Um, so there's about 300,000 people waiting for a kidney transplant, talking about only a third of them are actually getting them. Uh, that shortage of organs, you know, is a very real problem. And, and you do see that at the policy level. 2019, there was an executive order. And then in fact, the EU had done a directive um, prior to that, that had actually resulted in about a 17% increase in transplants. It's a tricky subject. Usually it's um, associated with deceased donors, uh, which is a very emotional issue, as you can imagine. But there is about a third that are done by uh, living donors, and, and we'd like to see that, that uh, increase. I think the other aspect is, is is an expensive procedure and you know here in the states which is a little bit more expensive but you know it's just about half a million to do a kidney transplant with the resulting therapies and the failure rate is not enormous 
but it's not small either. So, you know, anywhere up to about 20% do fail. Uh, we do see multiple uh, transplants in patients. Uh, you will, we have someone on on uh, staff that, that have multiple uh, as well. And, you know, I've talked to patients that's had three transplants. So, you know, it is a better diagnostic, uh, you know, result, as I, I guess, for patients than than being on dialysis. But it's it's still a tough path to go down. So a variety of sort of contextual challenges. Um, you head up Verici DX. That's why you're here. I guess, give us an explanation of, you know, your product platform. I believe you have three different products, you know, when these are used and what patients they're used on. Yeah, thank you. We, we were very excited to take some technology um, from uh, the labs of Mount Sinai in New York. Uh, the lead uh, investigator there was uh, Dr. Barbara Murphy, uh, and she realized that there was a huge power uh, in something that we call RNA signatures uh, in terms of diagnosing and helping clinicians help their patients for better outcomes. Um, what it is, RNA signature. So RNA is really like the message um, messaging system of the body. Uh, there's a lot of instructions um, being given through that. And so it's highly dynamic. Uh, and I think that that's a really important thing when we talk about the promise of personalized medicine, the idea of having or uh, being able, able to tap into these um pathways we you know body is a, a series is a huge network and these biological pathways using rna are very dynamic um messaging systems so if you can tap into the information you've got something that's very worthwhile now i you know i've got a very bad joke which is you know um if you look at the entire transcriptome you're, you're picking up all the messages of the body including grow a toenail and, you know that's a horrid joke but but realistically, that's what's going on. Feel hungry, grow some hair. All of those messages are, are captured in, in the entirety in the transcriptome. And we do that through what we call uh, sequencing. So RNA sequence, uh, sequencing sort of picks up the entire transcriptome. And then on top of that, what we do is sort through all of those messages um, and look for RNA signatures. And what those are, the collection of important messages pertinent to your clinical question. Um, we have three clinical questions uh, that we ask, uh, uh, and one is pre-transplant. So that question is, how aggressive or benign is the patient's immune system likely to be in the face of a transplant? Um, obviously the immune system, normally your best friend um, is your transplant's worst enemy because um, it sees it as alien and something to get rid of. So, you know, we're looking to see how the patient is likely to respond. Um, and that helps the clinician tailor their therapeutic uh, management post-transplant. If it's going to be aggressive, you're going to be on your um, immunosuppressant drugs for a long time uh, and at a high level uh, because it's worth it. Um, but if not, they can taper off quickly and with confidence. And obviously what you're looking for in that kind of um, modality is, is that balancing act. You know, Im immunosuppression suspends your immune system. It, it's no small thing. It's great for your transplant, but it's very, very uh, risky. Uh, and of course, particularly we saw that in COVID, passing infections and et cetera. 
it's a careful management. So transplant patients are, and their clinicians are forever trying to balance. Do I take too much? Do I take too little? What or you know, it has to have that value equation, and we assist in that. Um, the next one along the, if you like, patient journey um, is um, uh, for looking for early acute rejection. So post-transplant clinical question is, how likely is it that the patient is um, suffering rejection and is the body able to deal with it? And I think that's a very important question. We, you know, the, the danger is that you, you intervene when you don't need to. The body has a lot of coping mechanisms and for us, it was assisting clinicians in their decision whether to intervene or not. Do I raise the dosing level, for example, or can I say, OK, I just want to watch this and see if the body takes care of it. So that signature is very important in being just that level of precision that we we don't see anywhere else. And then lastly, um, you know, we have something which is for longer term outcomes. Fibrosis is the um is the condition uh and it's not just in kidney transplant this is an issue uh, elsewhere in in human health but fibrosis is is realistically uh, one of the major causes for uh, long-term outcome failure um and you know when you look at the stats on the five-year uh, failure rate a lot of that is is fibrosis so again protega is asking the question about long-term outcomes um, and, you know, is the is the body progressing fast or, or slow? Uh, all of those kind of questions we're looking to answer uh, with uh, with long term outcomes. So those are really um, if you if you think about it, those are three individual tests and they're very informative by themselves. Uh, we actually had some early data to suggest that they become even more helpful if you put them together. So when, you know, the pre-transplant um, informs the early acute, informs the late, um, that overall that becomes a management, a solution for the management long term. Um, and therefore, you know, that's why we would talk about this being a platform uh, technology. Um, so uh, what happens with that? Um, is effectively it's a genetic based test. The RNA is coming from the gene signature, the up and down the regulation, very dynamic, can be very precise and very uh, uh, early in comparison to, to what is there on the market today. A very impressive product platform there. And I think that's a good segue uh, to the news that I think was announced yesterday, day before. You signed an agreement with Thermo Fisher, one of the world's or probably the world's biggest sequencing player now. What's this agreement encompassing? What are the terms? So, uh, yes, it's with their um, a company called One Lambda, uh, which is under the Thermo Fisher uh, scientific um, structure. And um, One Lambda is famous for its pre-transplant um, uh, diagnostic uh, origins. Uh, the founder um, was... Um, a pioneer in what we call HLA testing. And that is about the compatibility between patient and organ. Um, and, um, you know, one of the things that uh, they have done is they have expanded upon their origins to be really the experts in pre-transplant, amongst other things. Obviously, they've gone further into the transplant area. But as we looked at our pre-transplant test, um, we realized that, you know, this, the, the fastest way to get this to the patients 
was to obviously um you know license that out to to those folks that were already in the marketplace already talking to clinicians about pre-transplant care uh, so that's what we've done that leads me on to my next question pipeline products the the, the scope for sequencing is pretty much endless it's all about how you apply that information is there anything kind of coming quite soon that Verici is hoping to be offering? Yeah, we're fortunate enough that we actually, um, what came out of our clinical validation uh, trial was um, the, the first product was actually Tutivia. That was that uh, second product I noted, uh, you know, the early acute rejection. So that's uh, that's being commercially launched. Protega is still, uh, which is the longer term, the fibrosis, long-term outcome signatures, that is something that we understand, um, you know, would 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 take us longer. So we always knew that would be the third market. That's still in clinical validation, um, and we expect to be pulling off the first sort of information next year on that. Uh, that's very exciting. Um, and then when we look at um, you know, the range, what we had done with the clinical trial is we had made it very very comprehensive um, across all kind of bodily fluids, all kind of time points. Um, and we had sequenced the entire transcriptome, even though we were pulling out only specific gene signatures at the time, um, knowing that we would be able to extend not only the power of these three products. So for example, if I take Tutivia, one of the things that um, we want to do is move it from effectively a point in time test to being a monitoring test so that you can run several times and you can see the progression um, for your patient. Um, I think that's a very good extension. Um, we also have the ability to look at more esoteric um, conditions that are associated with the transplant because we have all of the information. Uh, and we also have the ability to collaborate uh, with pharma uh, and other diagnostic plays. We know that the information that we've gathered, um, you know, we can't do everything in, in a timely way ourselves. Um, so we do um, actively collaborate to speed up the, the pace of innovation. That's one of our company goals. Um, and there are certainly a, a lot, a wealth of information to exploit there. One of the nice things we're able to do is distinguish between, you know, um, effectively rejection or kidney transplant specific uh, issues and other issues that might be happening, other infections, et cetera. Um, and, you know, that precision, I think, is going to enable us to, to look and see if there are other kind of technologies and tests that would be useful in that journey. Have you spoken kind of at length about, you know, your potential pipeline products. You do have competition in the field, though. Um, Deviser, KDX are just two examples that I've covered. I'm sure there are more. What makes your offering special, both from a technological standpoint, but also a commercial standpoint? Yeah, I mean, both of those companies are Selfie DNA focused. Um, and I've always said that Selfie DNA uh, was great advance in the field um, back in the day. Um, but, you know, obviously uh, technology moves on. So the issue with self-free DNA is it's highly non-specific. Uh, non uh, the issue that you've got is um, it will tell you that something's going on, but we're not quite sure what. Um, and, um, you know, what it's doing is it's, it's, me it's measuring what I like to call the debris in the blood. So um, something's happened. I can see the evidence that something's happened in the blood, 
but I don't know what that something is. Um, and so by and large, when that happens, uh, clinicians are forced to do a biopsy anyway. Um, and um, it also um, is not that helpful in terms of the early story. So if you can imagine the first real trauma to the body is, is the surgery itself. Um, and so what you're seeing is a lot of that debris in the, in the, in the blood from the surgery, which is right and proper. Um, so I think it's um, definitely still got it got its place it's um uh, in the industry and uh, it's it's well established it's quite well trusted people have used it for a number of years um and uh, as a rule out if there's nothing going on then you're, you're pretty sure that nothing you know nothing's going on so that's very helpful uh, obviously up to 50 percent of all patients have something going on uh, and so you need to address that so one of the things that we have um uh, positions ourselves is, is we think we have uh, both a, a, an early and actually a late term um, for the Tutivia product. So early means that anywhere from the first week post transplant, we have a test that you can use, uh, and that that hasn't been the case. Um, we also know that it's very dynamic, and I think this will lean into this idea of monitoring uh, further down the line when we have the data to support that. Um, we have obviously that personalization, that idea that it's it's been developed from patient specific factors, not population wide. Um, and so you're getting a picture of what your patient's body is is trying to tell you. Uh, and that sort of precision is is a growing trend in in the marketplace. So the other companies are very well established. CareDX obviously has a dominant position in the marketplace currently uh it's done very well with um its healthy dna um you know and we're now seeing other uh quite a few other offerings uh you've mentioned to there uh there are probably five in the marketplace uh we represent the new wave um and there are a couple of uh companies now that are sort of focused on really the gene uh expression uh, you'll see that uh, being offered. Um, ours has the distinction of being incredibly well characterized and tested in our clinical study, something that we believe is unparalleled. Um, so it was a 14 center international all comers study. Um, that means that we threw the kitchen sink at it. Um, you, pry, you, you pay a price for that in, in you know, in marketing, I'm, I don't have, you know, the, the sort of performance in the 90s, but what you do have is you have something that clinicians know they're facing in their own clinic. So if we had tested it on a subgroup, you can get a better result, but clinicians know that's not what they're faced with in their, uh, their own clinics. They know they need to have an understanding of what happens when you get all comers in a study. Uh, and I think that we got a lot of credibility uh, for doing it in a scientific, in a in a way that wasn't uh, that was very well curated and very helpful to them practically, they don't have to necessarily say, okay, that was an interesting study. Now I want to do another seven uh, to know how it's really going to work in my clinic. Okay, that all makes sense. You described yourself as the new wave of kidney transplant diagnostics. I really like that, but this wave hasn't really crashed or broken yet. My understanding is that. Physical biopsies are still pretty much the most commonly used modality, certainly here in the UK. Why do you think 
hospitals and care systems have been so slow on the uptake with cell-free DNA and RNA-based post-transplant diagnostics? It's always a challenge in healthcare, isn't it? Um, you know, the adoption curve. Um, and once something's in, even if, uh, um, you know, it, we saw that with PSA, that, that it had been heavily criticised and yet it's still used. Um, once something has been adopted and being used as a, uh, a comprehensive standard, it is very difficult to, to dislodge it and takes a number of years. Um, new technologies take a while to be adopted. We always, you know, uh, if you if you like to think about the hockey curve of, of adoption, um, healthcare products always have a very flat uh, bottom. You know, it starts very, uh, well until it gets trusted and then it takes off. Um, so it is a slightly different shape. And I think we want that. Um, I don't know about you, but as a patient myself, I don't want uh, the latest newfangled things. If you see it in the unregulated world, you know, just look at the diet industry and, you know, you've been bombarded with the latest supplements promising you the world uh, and delivering nothing and maybe sometimes um, scarily unhealthily. So I think in healthcare, we want to see um, a certain amount of caution. Um, we understand that we have to get the clinician's trust. And there are certain steps that you take to do that. For example, in the, you know, the design of our clinical study was a, was a big trust factor. So I think we have to um, you know, applaud the clinical community for being cautious. We then also have to say, but there's a balance. And, um, you know, I think the struggle is um, now our clinicians are so overwhelmed. Um, they have remarkably little time with patients. They uh, there's a lot of new innovation to keep abreast of. They do a good job. Um, but the temptation is to resist change. Um, and sometimes that that becomes too slow. So I think what we try to urge is that nice balance. It, uh, you know, we try and do educational uh, visits, um, making the information and the, the knowledge easily accessible, uh, digestible. Um, papers are very helpful. So, you know, uh, I know many a clinician that spends a good, uh, good time on planes catching up. But, you know, there is a balance and there are there are definitely challenges for innovators in terms of getting adoption. Uh, and some of it's good and healthy and some of it is not um and i think that they you know there is a very fine balance sometimes i get frustrated that the balance is 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 not uh not where it should be home dialysis it's been a fairly hot topic in recent years um this expansion in the us has been quite dramatic and obviously you know you, you were saying earlier dialysis is a treatment kidney transplant is the treatment for kidney disease is dialysis affecting the uh, transplant pipeline? That's funny. Uh, well, of course, uh, as a CEO of a transplant diagnostic company, I'm, I'm going to say it's the treatment. But, um, you know, the reality is they're both treatments. Um, and, you know, for dialysis, it has its place uh, for sure in terms of the, the care pathway. And with the lack of organs, you're going to have, you know, going to be challenged. Um I've had many a patient describe it as a you know, living prison sentence. Um, there are very well-documented problems and we've been delighted to see the rise and the emergence of much more of these kind of 
uh, emphasis on on home dialysis, you know, being able to free up a bit more time, making sure that patients aren't, um, you know, spending half their life in a centre. So uh, we're delighted to see that. Uh, for us, obviously, it's not really a market we pay an awful lot of attention to, uh, because essentially what happens is what a lot of our patients, unless they can skip the line, they're coming off, pay, uh, they've made the choice to come off dialysis to have a transplant. Um, and, you know, it's not a competitive situation, um, simply because there, there simply aren't enough organs to go around. Final question, I guess, kind of building off that not enough organs to go around point. Um, xenotransplants, namely with uh, pig kidneys, uh, slightly left of field. Final question. Mm-hmm. Will your platform work for xenotransplants or is it a completely different kettle of fish or pigs in this case? uh i find this field fascinating um and definitely the future um i think in fact it's not just pignoff transplants there's very interesting uh, developments in terms of just artificial uh, organs so um you know i think that this is a fascinating area it's still in its infancy uh and one of the things um that when you know when it's a bit further de- uh, developed, we'll be very interested to be doing some testing on. Um, I won't do it right now just because it's so early um, that, you know, for example, developing a, a signature for the immune response to to an animal-based uh, organ, um, you can see that we'll probably be able to work that out, but um, it's not uh, it's not around the corner. Uh, and I think we have time to to do that. Um, but it is a fascinating area, um, and I'm thrilled with some of the um, developments that they've made in that area. Tricky to to do research into that area, you know. I mean, ethically, um, that it you know it, it's very challenging. Uh, but it is delightful to see that that people are ploughing forward and making some great advances there. Brilliant, brilliant. So there's lots of hope for the future, improved diagnostics, improved transplant material. Thank you very much for your time right before the weekend, Sarah. I'm delighted. Thank you.